Well, let me tell you, it was far more responsive and sensitive than I ever imagined. I mean, I came off the deck, careened out to the right. I think I might have caught one of the cones, just nicked it, knocked it over, did a quick PIO, you know, uh, popped up, popped back down again. And for a split second, I thought, my God, I just bought this thing and I'm going to wreck it. There's a runway that used to belong to Ken Brock on the west end of the dry lake, a dirt runway out into the desert that kind of ends at the dry, start of the dry lake. So I said, well, I'll land there. There's no motorcycles there. So I turned and lined up. Everything was really cool until on short final, I realized there's a wire strung across the threshold of the runway on two posts. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, for that great intro, and thank you for joining us for episode 95 here on Soaring the Sky. Also, a big thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to financially support the podcast and help make this possible. You can help us out at patreon.com slash sky or hit the link in the show notes, and we greatly appreciate that. Wow, do we have a great episode for you today. Contest flying, scary landouts, hangar stories from World War II, and a whole lot more. Our featured guest pilot today is Dave Riley. He's joining us from the Merlin Soaring Center in Virginia. Like many of us, from the time he was a kid, he wanted to fly. Dave discovered gliding in 2005, and he progressed from the 233 to the 126 and on. He now enjoys flying his very own LS-818. Dave shares some great stories with us, like the time he was not sure if he was going to even make it back to the glider port, but remembered he had been in this situation before in the same area during simulation flying in Condor. What happens next may surprise you. In mid-May, Dave did a 240-mile flight that completed the altitude and distance requirements for his silver badge, as well as the requirements for his gold distance and diamond goal. On a fun note, he recently flew a 114-mile run to the northwest ridges and retrieved the boomerang plaque from the Front Royal Club after they landed at Merlin and claimed it on May 15th. He will better explain the boomerang during our chat. Dave's only regret is that he wished he would have discovered the sport a whole lot earlier. We will then head to the Netherlands for our new segment, Simon Says. Flying Simon is going to talk about his favorite soaring activity, Flying Contest. Our listener logbook is back today, and I'm excited. We are headed to the hangars in Tehachapi, California. Going to dust off the pages of some vintage glider logbooks that hold some amazing stories from World War II and more. As Christopher Stevenson chats with Doug Furnias, a vintage glider owner and enthusiast, have you ever been bored in the cockpit while in the air? Is that even possible? Dale Masters brings us another soaring tale, and this one is titled Stir Crazy. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. 
The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Dave Riley, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you today. How are you doing? Very well, Chuck. Good to be on. Thank you. And you are flying out of what area? Just outside of Richmond, just slightly to the west of Richmond, Virginia. So we're on the flatlands in the in the center of the state. I believe we've talked to a couple of your friends. You have, and they are a couple of great guys, uh, Chris Snyder and Pete Appleby, good pilots as well. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed speaking to both of them. So before we get into the main part of the interview, you know, I always like to start off by asking how everyone got started their aviation journey. So what inspired you? What got you started? You know, I've listened to uh, your episodes and I, I think the story, there, there's a thread line that runs through the, these stories. And that is when I was a kid, I can't explain it, but I've always been fascinated by airplanes. I lived on a farm. I used to go out and lay on my back in the grass and watch. And, and I didn't really realize it at the time, but um, um Johnstown Cambria County Airport, it was not too far from the farm. I didn't know at the time, but um, these, um, you know, I guess these student pilots would come in with their instructors and they, at the Cubs, I'm not sure what they were flying, but they would fly overhead and they would like, um, you'd hear the motor, you know, like speed up, slow down. And then all of a sudden you'd hear nothing. And I was just fascinated by whatever they were doing up there. And it was clearly they were instructing is what they were doing. So um, beyond that, it was more a matter of just a fascination with airplanes. Uh, got into rubber band powered airplanes uh, in the barn. We would we'd do great stuff. We'd take a, a hay wagon and pull it into the upper part of the barn and open the bay doors. And that was our aircraft carrier. And we'd launch them off the hay wagon and they go cruising right out the, the bay doors and just keep on going. And it just, you know, it just excited us. And it was just, it's just the kind of thing that I, that I did. We'd launch these things off of barn silos. So ever since I've been a kid, I've been uh, just preoccupied with airplanes and how they fly. And so. so what got you into gliders? How did that come along? Well, you know, when I was in college, of course, and again, like some of the other folks you've interviewed, I mean, I took some lessons, but I, I'm no rocket scientist. And it was like, okay, either I do this or I get my degree. So I said, well, I'm going to get my degree. And then, you know, life gets in the way and you get away from it. And in the back of my mind has always been, I, I, I wanted to fly or learn to fly. But you consider the cost and the maintenance on a power plane and so forth. And I never really crossed the line and went after it. And I happened to be sitting in front of the television watching a program on public television in here in Virginia called um, Virginia Currents. And there was one segment. And what the program did was highlight things that were going on in Virginia. And there was one segment on Merlin Soaring in Amelia Courthouse, Virginia. And I watched it. And I went, okay, I'm going out there. Tomorrow I'm going out there. And I did. And it was funny, Chuck. I... I walked up, there was nothing going on, okay? There were a couple of guys in lawn chairs sitting on the, uh, the kind of the, the, the concrete apron in front of a, of a big hanger. 
And one of them looks at me. In fact, I think he was the owner of the airport, uh, a guy named Dick Cavanaugh. He goes, what do you want? <laughs> and I okay. Said, uh, I, I said timidly, well, uh, I, I saw your program on, or I saw, you know, uh, the, the show about this, this facility uh, on television, and I was interested in finding out about gliding. Okay. And, <laughs> and he looks at the other guy and he goes, Leonard, go get the tow plane. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so um, they did. Of course, they immediately jumped on the opportunity to get someone up. And it was a 2.33. And I got to tell you, Chuck, um, I crawled into the front of this thing. It's the 2.33 we even have now. But I and some of the other guys, we've really, you know, cleaned it up and done a lot to it. But when I got into it, there were gaps between the front and rear, you know, canopy, uh, rust everywhere. I mean, it just looked horrible. And I'll never forget that this big ag wagon pulls out in front. And of course, they take up the tension on the tow line. <laughs> and the little voice inside of me is going, you know, I really want out of here. <laughs> I said, D -d do you really want to do this day? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, I manned up and I didn't say a word and we launched and I very quickly just loved it. And I think we might've done one more and I was back the next weekend with a checkbook ready to sign up. Yeah. I just, you know, <laughs> Once we got off toe, it was just amazing. Even in that that crotchety two thirty three, you know. Yeah, I think so. every club has one of those. Um, <laughs> I won't say any more about that. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it's it. You know, it does the job. Oh yeah. When it comes to training, the darn thing does the job. And and you know, I've I've gone from in two thousand five, I guess, uh, being in the front seat first time, to now spending a lot of time in the rear seat. And uh, so I've come a long way, but I appreciate that little bird. I really do. I mean, hey, a couple of one of our instructors, Paul Roberts and his wife, had that thing at like 9,000 feet a couple of weekends ago. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, crazy. Like, if, you know, <laughs> if you know what you're doing, it'll fly. Yeah, yeah really that's will. right. Yeah, yeah. So. so that kind of brings me to a question I wanted to ask you. So your instructor... Can you tell me what you've learned from teaching others how to fly and what do you enjoy most about it? You know, I think seeing people progress, I think, you know, the, uh, those what, first dozen lessons or so, however, however long it takes, depending on the individual, the toe can be a real, real rough thing to come to terms with. Even, you know, we've had airline pilots out there and the toe, of course, is the most challenging thing. And to see them finally, to see the light go on, you'll do, I don't know, a dozen or whatever it takes to get them to the point where, and all of a sudden, it's like a switch turns and they've got it. And it's amazing to see that transition, to see, to see that happen. Um, what else have I enjoyed? I think the camaraderie. Once you have a student to the point where they're pretty comfortable thermaling, and you sit back and you let them make their, their thermaling mistakes and kind of learn by doing just the camaraderie, the sense of, hey, we're in this together and we're having a good time and you're coming along nicely and I'm here to, to help you, to give you some advice from time to time. 
that's that's also a very very satisfying i think so i know there's obvious reasons but what attracted you to fly the glass ships i know you're flying those but i mean you you know you start out in that 233 and you're wondering whether you want to want to go up but well but what did it well you're right that's exactly right. Yeah, like wondering if this thing is even going to, you know, get me in the air. <laughs> but yeah, well, it was the typical progression, and I think a lot of guys go through it. Um, Thirty-three, you master that, and of course, hey, what about that little single seater over there? That's got the same glide ratio, same manufacturer. Um, I got to conquer that thing. So I transitioned to the twenty-six, which is a whole story in itself. I will never forget that that first flight in the 26, you know, when, I mean, the thing is so light. I think when I, I touched down probably two thirds down the runway and ended up clear at the far end of the runway because it was just so light and I couldn't get the thing down. Um, But um, transition to the 26. And I have to tell you that ship probably taught me, as much or more about about thermaling and about flying gliders as any ship I've ever flown. Um, Because I spent a lot of time scratching. You know, you take that little thing up on a weekday when nothing else will stay up, but that little 26 will. And you test yourself. You go, okay, can I just keep this thing in the air? How long can I keep it in the air? Can I get a hold of this, this wisp of a lift, this half knot or this one knot? And how my bank angle, how far do I have to crank it over to, to, to stay in this lift? Or on a more thermic day, you know, um, how do I handle uh, a particularly rough thermal? I, I really, I enjoyed that little ship. The only, the only thing, of course, that you find after you make a transition, boy, are those things noisy inside. I mean, the oil canning and the, the just the wind whipping through it. So, I then, we have a big two-seat Lark uh, flapped. Uh, are you familiar with the Lark? I'm not ship? familiar with the Lark. You know, I've, I've heard some stories about it, but I personally am not. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've heard, yeah, you've yeah. heard stories? Okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, they're, they're Romanian, and I always, I don't know whether it's true or not. I always joke. I think uh, they were probably uh, designed by the Russian Air Force or something, but they are like, they're beasts. They're very heavy, but they're amazing ships. They're a good-looking ship, and on a good day with those flaps, it is amazing how how a lark will climb. But I then transitioned to the lark, which was a real handful for me. You know, when you go from the the docile Schweitzers into something that's well, I've heard guys say it's you know it, it's akin to a glass ship. Obviously, it's not glass but it's akin to one and it, you, you really do. There's a learning curve there. And of course you've got the flaps to, to be concerned about. It teaches you a lot. So that was kind of my transition uh, from the 233 to the 26 kind of perfected my skills over the course of, I don't know, probably a couple of years and then went, okay, I think I got a pretty good handle on this 26. I want to tackle the lark got some advice, went up with an instructor and gradually got a handle on it. In fact, a quick story about the Lark. I think if anything ever, if anything sold me on uh, gliding, it was the Lark. And what had happened, I had started in the 233 and I 
there was an aileron issue. There was some kind of repair that had to be done to the 233. And I, I, I went out and, and my instructor at the time said, all right, we don't have the 233. Let's just go on up in the look. Okay. Well, this is a whole new experience for me, of course, as a, as a newbie. I'll never forget. It was like in March, maybe. And we got off at typical 3,000 feet, probably lost some altitude, and we're maybe down to 25 or something, and uh, caught a thermal. And within about, I don't know, seven, eight minutes, whatever it took, here's this 180-pound guy behind me. I'm soaking wet about 165, and we had climbed to 4,500, 5,000 feet, and we're still climbing. And, you know, I sat there thinking, my goodness, this is a, a heavy aircraft, got a couple of guys in it, and we just gained what? 1,500, 2,000 feet, and I was just amazed. And if anything sold me on, on gliding, that did, that, that ride in that lark that day. But I'm sorry, I'm, a, I'm sort of off on a tangent here. Uh, but again, you had the, the question you asked was the transition to glass. And then what I did, I had mastered the lark, and Eric Lambert, who's the uh, president of our club, um, he and a guy named Matt Takalu uh, were going to Chilawi, I think, for a contest. And uh, they needed someone to crew. Okay, well, uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll be glad to go. I, you know, I, hey, I wanted to experience what these guys were doing or see what these guys were doing. And Eric looks at me and he, he, he shakes his finger and he goes, you know, I want you to keep something in mind. You might want to think twice about this because I said, what do you mean? He goes, because you're going to get out there you're going to see all those beautiful fiberglass airplanes. And I guarantee within six months after you come back, you're going to have one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Warning. <laughs> and you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, he was not far wrong. I don't know how long after I got back it was, but I did. I bought a little ASW-19. So that was my transition to glass. And that, if you don't mind, I can quickly explain a bit about yeah, absolutely. that. Yeah, well, the guy who helped me rig it, it was kind of funny. He had flown 19s years before. So I guess for insurance purposes, you know, we needed to have someone there or Eric wanted to have someone there who knew the ship. And he did. He, he was an instructor, in fact, this guy. So he walks me through the rigging process, kind of explains controls the panel and everything <laughs> and then he leaves oh. <laughs> i'm going okay really wow. <laughs> so so we get out there and uh, i'm staged and ready to go and the instruction i got was uh, well it's going to be a little sensitive <laughs> okay it's going to be a little sensitive all right well all right well let me tell you it was far more responsive and sensitive than i ever imagined. I mean, I came off the deck, creamed out to the right. Um, did I catch? I don't think I caught uh, one of the cones. I think I might have caught one of the cones, just nicked it, knocked it over. Um, did a quick PIO, you know, uh, popped up, popped back down again. And for a split second, I thought, my God, I just bought this thing and I'm going to wreck it. And then the light went on 
I've got a 300 horsepower ag wagon in front of me. Stop. Don't do anything. Just let the ag wagon pull you behind it. And that's exactly what I did. And instead of trying to counteract everything, I left it get centered and didn't do much of anything on the tow. It was a, you know, it was a pretty benign day. And it was fine after that. I got off tow. And what I was blown away by was how quiet it was after flying the, even the Lark is, is fairly noisy, but fiberglass and that, you know, the canopy seals pretty well. It was just amazing. And the smoothness, the responsiveness was just incredible. I just couldn't get over it. <laughs> so I don't know. It wasn't a particularly, it was late in the afternoon. It wasn't particularly thermic. And so I was only up for 20 minutes or whatever. And I landed and <laughs> I rolled out, opened the canopy and Eric walks over and he goes, hmm, that landing was a lot better than that takeoff. <laughs> 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 I said, yeah. yeah, you got that right, fella. <laughs> but I guess, the, again, what I'm pointing out is it, it is amazing if you've been flying the metal stuff or like the Schweitzers and then you, you make that transition. I just could not get over. I was not anticipating the response that those ships have, you know, those high performance glass ships have. So I went on to fly it for a number of years. Uh, did my first cross country, uh, got my got my silver sea distance in it, um, and just had a great time in in that little nineteen. So, so what are you currently flying right now? I've got an LS eight eighteen. Um, I probably had it for about five or six years now. Love it, really. Just a, now it's a standard class ship and. I guess in hindsight, I probably should have considered uh, flaps gone to something flapped. I mean, there are some advantages to having a flapped ship as far as speed, uh, you know, running between thermals and stuff. But this LSA, they're still, in fact, I think, uh, pretty popular uh, in Europe, especially, I think. And of course, the well, the DG offers the LSA Neo, I think they call it. Yeah. Uh -huh. And just a great ship. Just a great ship with with the uh, the tips on it. For me, I I couldn't get over uh, the difference that the tips make. Yeah, I don't know what you've read or what your experience has been, Chuck, but um, particularly when it came to thermaling. Uh, now I flew it for a long time after I first bought it with in fifteen meter mode because I put the I put the eighteen meter tips on and it just was heavy and I didn't like it, so I went back okay. to fifteen meters and what I couldn't get over was you crank it into a decent thermal stable, you know, those tips will hold the, the air vortices from, from rolling off the tip of the wing. Right. So it kind of locks that lift in on the wing and it just, I couldn't get over how stable it was when you got it into a good thermal. I often joke, yeah, I take this, I take this LS8 on a good day, crank it into a thermal and kick back, you know, light a cigarette and have a beer <laughs> and, you know, and wait to get to 7,000 feet, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it is a nice ship. There's no question about it. Now, definitely there are, there are better performing ships out there now without a doubt. But for me, this, this LSA really does the job and I, I'm flying it almost always now in 18 meter mode. So even though there are days when I kind of think, oh, I want to get these things off because it does make a, it does make a difference in the way it 
not so much in the way it performs. Well, I mean, it obviously runs better with 18 meter tips, but um, when you crank it into a thermal, it's not as quick to turn as, yeah. you know, when you got the 15 meter tips on. So. so depending on your thermals, if they're a little tighter, it's a, you'd rather have the tips off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what I, what I have to do is, you know, I've got to turn a little earlier than I might with the 15 meter tips. Okay. Because I know it's going to take me a little, you know, a second or two longer to get the thing over. Right. So, but once you, once you get used to it, it's, it's not a problem. So. So when you're on the ground, could you maybe tell us a little bit about your pre-flight routine, both before you pull your glider out onto the line and also while in the cockpit getting ready for takeoff? Is there anything maybe you do differently than maybe some other people? Are there things you think other pilots commonly don't do that maybe they should? You know, I don't want to speak for other pilots. I think there's a tendency that I've noticed, particularly among more well, I want to be careful what I say here, but I've seen it happen where a guy who's maybe flying regularly, I say regularly, you know, a few times a month, three, four times a month or something, there's a tendency sometimes to kind of blow off the checklist in the cockpit. And particularly as an instructor, I find that very troubling. Um, that checklist, I think, is crucial. Now, we use CB SIFT CB. I think it's more of a European thing, but that checklist I think is invaluable. I think it should be done before you launch, no matter whether you're in your own ship or whether you're in, you know, you're taking a ride up, you can get in, let's face it, you can get into trouble. Uh, breaks that aren't locked, canopies that aren't locked. And the thing is, no matter how many times you may have taken a tow and everything went right, there's always that one time that lightning strikes and you know you get someone says something to you or you're preoccupied or something falls falls down and you're you pick it up in the cockpit and you put it back in the pocket and you miss maybe latching the canopy and those checklists keep you yep. keep you focused I, the military checklists the commercial airline checklist you go oh what you know man that's all that's a lot of drudgery you got to go through that stuff but you know what I understand why they do it. I absolutely understand why they do it. So I guess what I would say is uh, the checklists are very important. And that's even very true on landing. Gear down and locked. I make that announcement just to make myself, to, to reinforce it every time I land, you know, in the pattern, uh, I'll announce. And part of the last thing I say is gear down and locked. So Only takes one time, you know. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's the truth. It only takes one time. Um, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and we're human. We make mistakes. Absolutely. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how many times we've done it. You know, we, like, as a group, we've got a, a good bunch of guys in the club out there. And we, we're, we're growing in terms of students. And we will tell students, look, and some of these kids are like 14, 15. I've had I've, one of my students started at 13. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I'll say, look, and they're a little intimidated by all these, these guys out here running around, barking orders and flying gliders. And I said, look, if you see something that doesn't look right, say something. If you, if it, I don't care. You might be wrong. 
Don't worry about it. If it doesn't look right, if it doesn't feel right, say something. Because I said, okay, Riley over there, the instructor who's, you know, done, I don't know how many toes, a thousand toes or whatever he's done. He could go to hook up a glider and be a little preoccupied that day. Maybe something happened at home, you know, maybe something happened 10 minutes ago and forget to do something. It's, we're human. We make mistakes. That's right. And what we try to do and what we, Vince, a guy named Vince Foley is our safety officer. And what we try to really push is looking out for each other. You know, not being critical, not criticizing, not putting anyone down. But if something doesn't look right or you haven't done something that should be done, we point it out. Because the last thing we want is an accident. And we have not had one. But we're growing rapidly. And, you know, it's kind of a numbers game. I, yeah, I, right. I, I hate to say that, mm-hmm. but the more toes, the more people you have flying, the more opportunities for a mistake. And we're trying desperately to not have something happen. So we really Absolutely. do push checklists and, and just try to look out, look out for each other. So I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. You can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho, in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications, and that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Well, we're kind of in our busy time now, especially here in the Mid-Atlantic, so a lot of us are doing a lot of flights. But do you use any flight simulator like Condor or X-Plane in the wintertime to keep you kind of current, or, or do you use it for that, or is it just for fun if you do? No, I um, I strongly advocate uh, Condor. I love it. Um, in fact, we are fortunate here. We we fly year round. We do. We're able to do it now. It may be primarily instruction in the winter time. Well, that's not entirely true because believe it or not, and either Pete or Chris may have mentioned it. It is it is surprising. Someone once said, ah, you'll never thermal, you'll never stay up at Merlin. <laughs> well, <laughs> guess what? If the wind is blowing hard enough up on the ridges, you That's get right. that wave and it ends up down here. And we've really gotten good at knowing where it's most likely to occur. And we've had some some great wave flying down here. And that's during the wintertime. But back to your question. Um Yes, we don't fly as much during the winter time. It's mostly instruction or, you know, we'll get those three or four to five days. It doesn't usually go that long where the weather is just crap. And that's when Condor and I, 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 I've got what I usually find is the kids are more apt to go ahead and jump on it. And one of our guys put together scenery for Merlin, which I just love because it lets my students 
they can actually fly out of Merlin. They can see the main hangar, the main building. They can see a pond along the road when they take off, you know, and when they land, they can see the trees around the field. This this guy did a great job with it. And I, I think Condor can be invaluable. Now, I've heard guys criticize it. Well, it's not, the, and they're right. It's not the same thing. I mean, you don't, there's no seat of the pants. You, you can't obviously feel the glider, but I've got one of the old Microsoft, um, what do they call them? It's a stick. I'm force feedback stick. I, that oh, might yeah, not be the term, it. but yeah, I think, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can get them on eBay and I've got, well, I used to have three of them. I think I sold one and gave one to one of my students and I've still got one here, but it will give you, if you, if you get slow and, and, and go into a stall, the, the, you know, the stick will actually vibrate or yeah. you can, or you can drop into the wake and, Feel right. the stick vibrate, you know, and it's. It, uh, do you have one, or you're saying you're agreeing? Do you have one? No, I've 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 used one a couple of times. I don't have the four speed. I just have the regular stick. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It does. Yeah, and even in a even in a thermal. I mean, if you get a little slow on a thermal and start to lose it, it'll start to vibrate. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 really quite nice. But again, a lot of guys will say, well, it's, and they're right. It's not completely realistic. It's not like sitting in the cockpit. But to me, if you're not flying for a while, um, well, number one, I don't know, anyone who really gets bit by this, you know, I get kind of cranky if I haven't been in a glider for a week or so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this allows you to at least get behind a stick and, uh, you know, and do some simulation and sort of stay in the game. And that, that's what I always encourage guys to do if, if we're not flying much. Um, just take takeoffs and landings, toes, just to keep your head, you know, in the game and aware, thinking, uh, doing pattern work on Condor. I, I think it's great fun and I think it's very useful, particularly for kids who are, I say kids, well, for any, any student who's looking to reduce the amount of money they spend on toes, you know, that, that's clearly the disadvantage to uh, learning to fly in gliders. Yeah. You get what at best? I mean, well, I say at best, um, if you're doing maneuvers and so forth on a, on a uh, training flight, 20 minutes, 15 minutes. Yeah, and, exactly. <laughs> and a lot happens in that 15 or 20 minutes and you don't, you can't really spend a lot of time perfecting your skills, but you can do that on Condor. At least you can, like I said, you can keep your head in the game and get a good feel for what you want to do. The pattern work, you know, pin down your altitudes and your sight picture and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot you can do as, as a instructor, there's, you know, you can give your students some things to work on and they can work on it. And again, they, it makes them that much better when they come out. Yeah. Oh, kind of done, kind of done this before. Well, you know what? I'll share a quick story with you. I, um, we have something, and I don't know, Pete and Chris may have mentioned it. We have something called the uh, Boomerang Trophy here in Virginia. Yep. Yep. They mentioned it, I think. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah, it, it bounces between clubs. Right. So Eric Lambert and our chief tow pilot, uh, Mark Tinsley, uh, back in October, I think, or late last year, jumped in his big Arcus and made the run up there. 
and uh, claimed it and flew back, you know, powered up and came back. And they claimed the the uh, boomerang. So it had been with us until the 15th of May, I think it was, when Chuck, we had we had a day when, believe me, the the, the soaring gods were smiling. I mean, they, <laughs> they were just saying, "Hey guys, here are the clouds. Go get it!" You yeah, know? right. I mean, <laughs> oh, I gotta love those days. It, oh, it was phenomenal. I mean, it was just phenomenal. Uh, in fact, that was a day that uh, Pete Appleby did his 500K. Eric Lambert and a guy named Matt Takaloo, they did 500K and actually more than that. I did my 300K. That was what my, my gold badge, or my diamond gold, my, no, my, my gold badge and my, these badges I can't keep straight, and my diamond gold, I think it's, that's the way it's phrased. But it was just a day when, you know, well, as one of our guys likes to say, it was a day when you could thermal a Buick. <laughs> <laughs> I love that phrase. I just love that. <laughs> a little worse than the 233. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So a guy named Tom Ward from Front Royal came down and he came down and reclaimed the boomerang. Okay. So was it last... I guess it was last Wednesday, I think it was. It, I went out to the field. It was a good day. Got in the air, went to 6,000 feet, said, you know what? This is the day to go back up there. It's about a 114-mile run. This is the day to go and reclaim that darn boomerang. Because what these guys will do, we, we kid about it, but on the ridges, you know, you get that ridge highway going. And so Front Royal and Newcastle, they just trade the darn thing back and forth. So we're down here in the flatlands or down on the coast at uh, Tidewater Soaring. And, you know, we're watching them trade the boomerang back and forth on the ridges. Well, we don't have that advantage of getting on the ridge and just zipping down to Newcastle or zipping up to Front Royal. And I know I'm not being fair. I'm, I'm making light of it. Ridge flying <laughs> is, a, is a whole other animal, and I admire those guys. Don't misunderstand me. <laughs> but it's not fair. You know, they have the right. highway up there. We don't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyhow, I headed for Front Royal. And I guess I'm circling back to what we were talking about in Condor. Well, I got about 15 miles out of uh, Front Royal, and it had been great. I mean, I was just bouncing from cloud to cloud, made pretty good time and got about 15 miles out and I'm looking at the ridge ahead. Okay. Now I'm a flatlander. That ridge, even though I'm from Western Pennsylvania, when, you know, when you're at five or 4,000 feet, I know the ridge is only, I think about 1800 feet, somewhere in that vicinity going into Front Royal. It, it varies, but it's somewhere around there. I think it still looks pretty intimidating. And for a very long stretch, there's nothing but trees. And you're looking at hillsides. And you're not looking at flat fields where you can land if you have to. Yeah. So I get about 15 miles out, and the clouds will begin to part. Okay. I think the soaring gods had decided to start frowning on me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... I mean, the clouds started to get sparse. The lift I was not finding was kind of weakish, you know? I'm going, oh, am I going to have to turn tail and go back into Culpepper or something? 
Well, I turned around and I saw a cloud that was fairly close. It wasn't the greatest looking, didn't have a nice gray bottom on it, but I thought, well, there's some hope there. So I eased over there and I, I don't know, I might've been down to 4,000 or something like that, I think at this point. Well, I want a, you know, I want a good margin going across that ridge. That, that thing is intimidating. So I got over to that cloud, found like a knot and a half or something. And it was a little, a little weak at first, but I stuck with it and it got better and better. And I got back up to just under six and I said, okay, I'm going to run for that ridge. And nice. I started for it. But here's the thing. You were talking about Condor. I used to fly a similar pattern coming out of Front Royal. Front Royal's got some good scenery on Condor as well. And I used to come off the ridge, come down towards, I don't think their scenery goes too far down towards the southeast. But I remember I'd, I'd come off, you know, 10 or 15 miles off the ridge and then turn around and try to get back over the ridge and get to Front Royal again on Condor. And every time I would do it, I'd be looking at that ridge and I'm, I think I was flying a 19 on Condor and it just, you know, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I just know I'm not going to make it. And I'd always get over or I'd get across the ridge and there would be lift. And I'll be darned flying the, the LS headed for the ridge. It was amazing. It, it, it sort of like suddenly I was flying Condor again. Now, maybe that was a, Maybe that was a good thing. Maybe that was a bad thing. I'm not sure in hindsight because, you know, hey, hey, Riley, no, you're not in Condor. You're not sitting in front of your desk at home. You're in an airplane. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but what struck me was that it was like Condor. I was looking at this ridge line just the way I did in Condor, and I was headed for it. Am I going to make it? Well, I think I'm going to make it. I think this this should work. This should work. Again, uh, what I'm reinforcing is that I had done it any number of times in Condor, and it was so similar. So I got kind of low approaching the ridge and pulled the speed back, found some lift that was not great, but it got me, it gave me the altitude I needed to get over. And then once I got over, I mean, I don't know, I just gotten over the ridge and maybe got a half mile, boom, right into a nice, you know, well, for me at that point, it, a two-knot thermal felt pretty good. And yeah. It was consistent <laughs> and it just got, no, really, and it did, you know, and it got better. And I had plenty of altitude, went into Front Royal, couldn't raise anybody on the ground. I'm fooling around over, over Front Royal. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to reach the guys back at Garner on the radio because I knew they were flying, but I couldn't raise anybody. So I get over Front Royal, I bang into a three-knotter, I crank it over which becomes a four knotter and well, okay, I'll just sit here and go on up to as high as I'll go up to 5,000 feet and see if I can reach anybody. So that's what I did. Went up to, I think 5,000 feet, something like that, but I, I couldn't reach anybody on the ground. I think primarily because they had landed by that point, by the time I got there. And so I went to 5,000 feet and said, well, you know, there are a couple of ridges over there. By that time it was probably, I'm thinking a little before five, something like that. Well, you know, I'll go over there and see if these ridges are working. Oh, good grief. I couldn't spend any time, but they were working great. Even the secondary ridge was working. I was like, 
why now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I needed to get on the ground and make a phone call and get an arrow toe back out, back home, you know? Yeah. So, um, but that's kind of a long, that's that's a long story. But I guess the point I'm making is it was just what struck me was the similarity between what I was seeing as I went into Front Royal and Condor. So it, it, I think it served a purpose there, you know? Oh, absolutely. So, so uh, speaking of uh, glider ports and the one you fly, but are there any other locations maybe have on your bucket list that you would love to soar someday? You know, out West, I guess, uh, and I'm what comes to mind. Um, I, I can't, a specific one, I, you know, I can't think of one right off the top of my head, but yes, in answer to your question, I would want to go out West and do some flying out there. I've, I've got to have that experience sometime in my, my gliding career without a doubt. Yeah. So one of the goals of the show here is, is of course, always to help grow the sport of soaring around the world. What are some things that you've seen or maybe people you've met in the last few years that are helping to work in this direction? Any suggestions for the community of things that maybe we could do better to help grow? You know, uh, Chris Snyder and I often talk about it. I think it's, the personal relationships you develop when, when people, and we are growing, it, it's amazing how we're growing here. But I think in, in large part, it's because of Chris and I particularly, and other people do it, don't misunderstand me. When, but when people reach out, you know, to our site and express an interest, they get an immediate response. And I find, uh, and I know this is the age of text and email, but I'm a little old school. I will get on the phone, get people on the phone, talk to them. They'll pick up on your excitement and, and you know, explain what it's all about and how they can come on out. And most of them that we get want fast packages. Brief them, give them a sense of what to expect. And then when they come out, and it's something I think our club does very well, Generally speaking, there's a camaraderie among us. We're having a good time. We're safe. We're careful. But we're having a good time. And I think it comes out. And when people see that and they feel welcomed, they feel engaged, I think that that really is crucial to, to growing the sport, to getting people involved. I mean, I've been to places where you know, if you don't know the guys who fly, you kind of stand around and like, uh, you're the odd man out. Like, who are you? You're not one of us, uh, you know? Yep. And that's not good. Yep. Now, look, I will say this. This sport is very much an, well, am I right? Not correct. Not completely. It's an individual sport. It is in the sense that for the most part, we're flying single seat ships and you're you know, you're consumed by going flying when you decide to do it. It's to be safe. You've got to be consumed. You've got to do everything you need to do, run your checklist, do everything. But I guess what I'm getting to is to the extent we can do it, we have to welcome people. When people come out to take a ride or they're, they're, they're kind of unsure about what they're getting into, engage them, bring them out, you know, Stand with them, spend some time talking with them, you know, pointing out things that are being done. Um, a lot of our new folks who have uh, joined, well, I, many haven't, haven't actually joined at that point. Uh, you get some, some young kids out there, come on over here. Let me, 
let me let me walk you through a wing run, you know, engage them, show them what we do. And that excitement, uh, you know, gets transmitted and, and people, I don't know what the percentages are, but the people who come out and do fast rides, of course, usually they're, they're, they're of course, they're, they're considering doing it. I think we've probably got a, I don't know, 90% closure on them because when they come out, we engage them, we get them involved, we talk to them. And again, they, they see the camaraderie and the excitement that, that, that we have out there and they want to be a part of it. And that, that I think is that, that one-on-one relationship I think is crucial if the sport is to grow. I really do. And particularly with parents, you get parents out there with their young, with their young boys or the young girls and they, 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 you know, they're a little unsure. Well, is this something I really want my son to do? I mean, I want him to be involved in, in aviation, but so you talk to the parents, you know, you assure them, you, they see that you're being very safe in what you do. And, and that also is important, especially for, you know, drawing uh, young folks in. So. Absolutely. Because they are the future, the future of soaring. Well, you're right. And I mean, what's the average age of a, of a, of a, soaring pilot in this country we, we right. were talking recently <laughs> you know like these uh, international contests you know you bring the the europeans in yeah what's the average age of one of their pilots i don't know 30 maybe yeah. i don't know something it's, like that maybe yeah 20s or yeah yeah we've the talked to a few of them yeah yeah i think you're going to find the american team probably a little older Maybe. So I think bringing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, look, I'm not being, I'm, I don't, I mean, no offense to anybody. No, my God, these guys, uh, my hat's off to these guys for what they do. No, they're great pilots. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 I have nothing but respect for them. But yeah, I think we do have to bring uh, young people into gliding, into, into soaring. Yeah. So. Well, uh, I'm sure by now you've heard of our famous soaring lightning round. Yeah, I've heard it. Sure. So you ready to have some fun, Dave? Yeah, go ahead. We'll yeah, we'll, we'll give it All a right. go. Here. You sure. can always pass on one of them. So if, if there's something, you know, you can just say pass. We'll go to the next one. If you're looking for good lift, would you rather follow a vulture, a hawk, a condor, an eagle, or a goose? You know what? If it's going round in circles and climbing, I don't care what it is. <laughs> I'll join it. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how, what an ugly bird it is. I don't care if he's climbing and circling. I like that answer. Yeah, I'm joining him because very good. Guaranteed, if he's going up, I'm sure to find lift there. So yeah, go ahead. Ventus three or ASG twenty nine? Yeah, I'd probably go with the ASG twenty nine. Pawnee or Piper Super Cub? Pawnee. Clear Nav. LXNav or XCSOAR? <laughs> okay, I have a clear nav, so I'm partial. Okay, <laughs> understand. <laughs> SkySight or XC Skies? You know, I'm conflicted there. I use them both. I'm just going to answer that way. I use them both and compare them and, you know, then sort of get a consensus. So, yeah. Flaps or no flaps? I would say flaps, and uh, I think I mentioned earlier I don't have flaps, but I, I think flaps are a good thing. Yeah. Thermals or ridge? Oh, I'm a flatlander, so I'd have to go with thermals. Okay. <laughs> Wave or convergence? Wave. 
fly cross-country or stay close to home? Oh, of course. Fly cross-country. When it's doable, <laughs> my goodness, that's what you want to do. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or topless? <laughs> <laughs> or, or okay. All right. Um, I guess I shouldn't be laughing, should I? <laughs> um, I guess cap. I would say cap. We, we, of course, without the button on top. You know, we, that's one thing we always are careful of. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Long pants or shorts? I like shorts. I like to be cool and comfortable. Yeah. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? <laughs> I'll go with shoes. Water bottle or bladder? Bladder. Transponder or ADSB app? Both. Regular contest or Grand Prix? Oh, uh, they're both they're both terrific. I wouldn't distinguish between either one. In their own way, they're really good. Yeah. P tube, P bag, or diaper? Hey, nobody guess, talks about it, so we're talking I about know, it. No, no, I know, I get it, I get it. We get a lot for convenience sake. Um, the diaper, or what? What's the other thing? The um, oh, the the name escapes me. What's the brand you can get that you wear? Depends. Depends. Yeah, there you go. That's it. That's it. Yeah, it just it just simplifies the whole process, you know. Right. <laughs> Electric sustainer or turbo? Electric. Okay, I got a couple more for you. Okay. Single seater or two seater? Uh, I'm partial to single seater. Vario sound in sync or quiet? Quiet. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate that. So I, I have one more question. Is there anyone that you'd like to give a shout out to before we say goodbye here that's been influential in your storing? Oh, there are so many people. Um, I, you know, I don't want to single out one necessarily. Certainly Eric Lambert has been very helpful to me. Uh, Matt Takalu has given me a lot of good advice. Uh, Jim Garrison has helped me on perfect my cross-country skills. A guy named Rich Owen down at uh, in Florida, wonderful uh, military uh, retired airline pilot, has given me advice. Um, so those are some names that I would throw out there that uh, have been influential to me. Thank you, Dave. I've enjoyed talking with you. I had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. I definitely have. And again, thank you for for doing this podcast, for in, inviting a lot of folks on and, you know, pilots with their experiences that they can share. And, and we all can pick up something from every one of these podcasts. There's a little different perspective and it makes you think about your own flying and, and hopefully you become better. That's the idea to grow the soaring community and have fun while we're doing it, right? Yeah, and to learn in the process, to always be open to what other guys are doing and what they might be doing better that you know that you can learn from that you're not doing. Absolutely, you can learn from every story for sure. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. You're very welcome. I want to take just a minute to thank a longtime sponsor of the show. We are so honored to have the support of the Southern California Soaring Academy. They are doing meaningful and almost monthly now nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility. They're located just outside of Los Angeles up in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there, and they are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. 
If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please just pop over to their website, that's soaringacademy.org, or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. We now join Flying Simon for another segment of Simon Says. Today, I'd like to talk about my favorite subject, and that is flying in competitions. I've been doing so since 2016, and since that moment, I have been absolutely hooked. Now, in the coming weeks, I'll participate in the Junior European Championships in Lithuania. I'll be going for the Netherlands and flying in club class, and I'm absolutely looking forward to finally being able to participate again after a two-year hiatus. I'm looking forward to directly comparing myself with others, see the result of my decisions directly in my speed, and hopefully to book a good result. And I know that some of you might be thinking I'm not much of a competition pilot, but I'd like to argue that deep inside, everyone is a competition pilot. Because who doesn't want to pick up a thermal when others are not doing so? Who doesn't want to fly longer than their clubmates? And who doesn't want to explore more of the country simply because you're faster? So there's always something to learn. Even if you're not a competition pilot, I would urge you to maybe fly a competition once or twice simply to expand your knowledge. Now I know that some of you already have this enthusiasm for competition flying. So if you want to follow my adventures in Lithuania, make sure to follow me on Instagram and I'll see you in the next episode. We're back with our listener logbook, and Chris Stevenson is going to join us in the hangar with Doug Fernias. Doug loves vintage gliders and is about to share some great stories with us right now. So let's join him in the hangar. This glider has landed everywhere you can imagine in the animal Valley. <laughs> What's the fans? It's a 50 foot. 50 foot. So it's like 16 and 15 and a half meters. 16 meters. Where is the most exciting place you've landed? Uh, to, you okay? To, yeah. Exciting. exciting. What makes it exciting? Yeah. <laughs> Sporty? Uh, remote place? <laughs> oh, remote is different from exciting. Yeah, it's a very boring landing. Very remote, um, boring landing. I landed at the uh, RC model airplane field. Oh, I've been there, okay. I landed Over in at, Palmdale? Yeah, in yeah. Palmdale. I've landed yeah. at the uh, old Donald Douglas duck hunting lodge, <laughs> which is uh, north of between Foxfield and Roseman. Okay. I've landed at a farmer's field halfway between Palmdale and Elmira Shry Lake. Okay. I know the most exciting one. I was trying, I was lined up to land at Elmira Shry Lake. <clears throat> and I got over it, and there were car and motorcycle races going oh, on. Yeah. Uh oh. Oops. And there were people zooming everywhere. Oh boy. So, well, this isn't safe to land. So at the last minute, like maybe a 700 foot of AGL, there's a runway that used to belong to Ken Brock on the west end of the dry lake, a dirt runway out into the desert that kind of ends at the dry, start of the dry lake. Uh-huh. So I said, well, I'll land there. There's no motorcycles there. So I turned and lined up. Everything was really cool until on short final, I realized there's a wire strung oh. across the threshold of the runway on two posts. This, this place had hangers. There were ultralights there. Who would string a wire 
And so I had to decide, am I going over? A wire that only went between the poles? No, it went somewhere. It was oh, like it was, power. Oh, it was like a power line. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it was a homemade one. Yeah. So I had to decide really quick to go under it or over it. Mm. And I went under it. Mm. I dive down, go under, and land. That was the most <laughs> exciting landing in that glider on a cross country. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was in a dust devil dash. He's uncovered for visitors. This glider. <clears throat> was based at 29 Palms in World War II. Right. you're a 29 Palms person. Right. And actually has 1,300 hours of military time in a year and a half. Wow. So they flew the heck out of it. In a year and a half. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's and then, a lot of time. And then it was retired from the military. That's like six hours a day. Yeah. They were nonstop flying. A lot of it at night. You know, they had lights on them. Wow. And it survived the war. It survived all that. Yeah. Yeah, that the history of what the Soaring 29 is really incredible, and there's a lot of amazing stuff that happened. I would love to be able to find. Well, I mean, I'm sure all those pilots are gone, gone dead. Yeah, now. I, knew, I knew quite a few of them, you know, in previous years, and we flew some of them. There's one guy in particular, Carl Gortney, who's one of my heroes, passed away about five years ago. Hmm. Carl trained at 29 Palms and had his World War II logbooks. And the very first entry is this glider. Really? You know, he has a military ID number, which is the same one he has now. Oh, really? And he went on to fly Waco CG-4s and Waco CG-13s in combat. Oh, really? He was an amateur photographer, took his camera in the combat, and most of the combat World War II glider pictures and books are his. Really? Oh, really? He, he had great stories. He would develop film in his, in his combat helmet, wherever they were. <laughs> And, and he said, well, where did you get supplies? <laughs> he said, oh, well, every time we advanced and overran the Germans, they had really good documentation, so they always had a good photo van. So we'd capture all the prisoners. I'd go find the photo van and get <laughs> on all my chemicals and film. Because <laughs> they were the best in the world. Yeah, but it's hard to find that kind of chemistry. So he, he, um, he flew, um, I don't know what you know of World War II history, but he first got based in North Africa. Mm -hmm. He flew into Sicily in Iwako, mm -hmm. across the Med, under attack. He flew, he, he, then he flew from England. He was in second wave on D-Day. Oh, really? In the Normandy. And then he flew, uh, the most famous one, he flew into Arnhem, in Market Garden, which was the, mm. if you ever don't read the book, A Bridge Too Far, or the right. movie A Bridge Too Far. Mm -hmm. That operation, that was the biggest glider operation. 1,500 gliders in one day wow. in Arnhem. And he was one of the group of 30 glider pilots, 30 gliders. They were flying cargo. You know, you, oh, you, they were mostly used for cargo. Ammunition, oh, okay. gasoline, stuff like okay. that, not people. People uh, could come in by parachute. Yeah. So they all landed and they were surrounded by the Germans. No troops, no combat troops. Just glider pilots oh. were supposed to hitchhike back to England. But they had gliders full of howitzers and machine guns and all kinds of stuff. So they made a circle like the covered wagon thing and pulled out all their big guns. They didn't have training in how to use them. And set them all up, all firing outboard, and all got in the middle and just every couple of minutes would fire off a gun because they had piles of ammunition. And the Germans thought there must be a battalion there or something, you know, a huge group. And they uh, spooked them out. They, it, they kept them out for two weeks. They were pinned down, what? and finally they got relieved by advancing Allied troops, and oh. he got back to England. So he was one of the famous. There's a that's in a couple of books. 
So, but Carl trained in this glider, and then in later years, he and I went flying in it quite a few times. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. And so oh, he's he's uh, he's flown the, this glider with me. We used to fly up here in the airplane. He was a radio control model builder, so he yeah. had radio control models of this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's really cool. Still crazy. Last year, cabin fever became the new endemic, and everybody caught it all at once. Flyers under lockdown can be like caged birds with brains way too big for the chore. It's only natural to daydream about wonderful flights, past or future, and all the adventures we have or have not yet enjoyed. But then, if even that gets old, how about the other extreme? Flights made more memorable by excruciating tedium. Got to be a story there somewhere. Beginners might suppose it's impossible to get bored aloft, and I thought so myself for years. I logged several hundred hours of CFI before ever experiencing the faintest hint of boredom in the air. It happened for you at least expect my first checkout at a glider port in the southwest, eagerly expecting to have my mind blown. Up till then, everywhere I'd ever flown, the challenge of simply staying aloft prevented anything close to indifference. But this was just too easy. A booming thermal came as no surprise. I'd seen ten dollars before, though never a nine thousand AGL. With no clouds anywhere and the nearest hills miles away in two directions, I asked the instructor where to head next. And he was audibly yawning as he said, Oh, just go straight, you're good. And he was right. What we tripped into seconds later felt the same as what we just left. No strategy, no tactics, nothing but gobs of tall blue thermals standing shoulder to shoulder. So now I knew that aerial ennui was also a thing. My personal benchmark for stir craziness was a typical late summer day in hazy old New England. I'd been mowing grass since morning while several pilots launched and landed, reporting not enough to stay aloft anywhere. So once the day was about over, I took my usual 1,800-foot toe to the nearest hill in search of a cure for gravity. The reports were accurate, no lift of any kind, except a certain small declivity in the slope collecting a smidge more than its share of both sun and wind. In the 233's smallest, slowest possible figure eight, I was able to hang at one altitude for what I was asked to admit was one of my longest flights that season. Three whole hours, actually. On and on it went, delirium eventually settling to sheer drudgery. Through what seemed a thousand nearly identical figure eights, I honestly never gained or lost more than 50 feet, but I did stay up. It was a two-mile tow, a three-mile final glide, and a ton of zeros, in, well, a ton of figure eights in between. So yes, even soaring can become boring, but when, it, when circumstances make it so, remind yourself that a case of numb butt is more enjoyable in the air than on the ground. Thank you, Dale. Unfortunately, this will be Dale's last segment on the podcast. Dale is retiring and will be hopefully enjoying more time in the glider. Dale, we thank you so much for your contribution to the soaring community and here on the podcast. We have very much enjoyed your soaring stories and lessons we have learned along the way from you so we can be better and safer pilots. You're always welcome to be our guest here on the show at any time. 
Dale also had some great stories published in Soaring Magazine. You can read those. Dale is also the author of the book Soaring Beyond the Basics. Thank you for joining us for another Soaring Journey and adventure here on Soaring the Sky. If you have a short story, we have a great recording tool on our website. You can leave a story for us, and most likely, it will probably end up on the show. Talk to you in a couple weeks or sooner if you're catching up on our previous episodes. So until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.